Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello everybody and welcome once again to The View From The Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm your host, Danny Kelly. Alongside me today is The Athletic's James Moore and Jack Pitbrook. And as you can hear from the music there, Spurs have finally beaten Chelsea at the new stadium. That, of course, is finally by the wonderful CC Peniston. Um, we'll be discussing that huge win, what it means, and also answering a selection of questions from you, our listeners. Yep, that's right. You're getting your chance today. But let's start. How could it be other um, with, the, with that victory over Chelsea at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium? And I'm not taking any of this, oh, aren't Chelsea useless? They are Chelsea. They have found ways to beat Spurs. Spurs beat them, and I thought beat them reasonably handily. So much so that, James, you were even smiling by the end of it, as I understand it from my scouts in the stadium. I, I took leave of my uh, pessimism and like sort of properly celebrated a goal. The second goal, I, I was so confident that was onside. I like tracked Harry Kane's run visually. And uh, normally with that kind of thing, I'd be worried about offside, but I knew he was onside because I'd been watching it. I was expecting him to get the ball and I was expecting him to score. And at that point in the game, it was the best time to score the second point goal of the game, right? 82 minutes. Just as they're sort of starting to think, yeah, we're getting back into this. We're getting back into this. Perfect time to kill it off. And yeah, I, I went I went down and enjoyed my... I kind of stepped out into the aisle and realised I couldn't stand there because I was blocking everyone else off. So I had to kind of go down to the front and join the the limbs and you know and was it very enjoyable did you really enjoy that physical aspect of, of supporting a football team yeah i felt alive. i felt alive no, it was good i enjoyed myself you felt like what the last time you were in a nightclub gone oh the last time i was in a nightclub was uh was on friday night uh, what which one which was the, which was the first <laughs> it's not a nightclub actually it's just a bar okay was it good uh, yeah yeah that was good as well thank you uh, it was the first time i'd seen spurs beat chelsea since january 2017 in in the flesh. That was before Donald Trump's inauguration as US president. Look at that for a landmark. It's six years. Six it's more than six years since Tottenham have beaten Chelsea in Tottenham. I mean I think I know they beat them at home in inverted commas at Wembley, but those Wembley games aren't really canon. They beat them on penalties in uh, COVID as well. In the League Cup. Behind closed doors. In the wonderful new stadium, zero points. Like, it wasn't zero canonical, goals. whereas this one yeah, just proper. Yeah. This is the first time for a long yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. And it, the weird thing about it is it didn't feel like they were playing Chelsea, really. It, particularly in the second half. I mean, the first half had that kind of Tottenham-Chelsea edge. There was a lot of physicality. and But in, this, in the second half, it just felt like Tottenham dispatching a, a mid-table team. It didn't feel that different from Tottenham beating West Ham the other week. No, it was really similar to that. I did think Really, that. really similar game in so many ways. And um, the fact that Chelsea have, have spent, you know, the best, you know, almost billions of pounds, whatever it is, on the, on this team... Felt completely by the by. Like it's uh, in the second half, they just kept on bringing players I'd forgotten played for Chelsea. <laughs> yeah, it really was. It uh, really Bama was. Yang, Mudrik, Zakaria. It really was. It was two 0 in your cup final, wasn't it? It really was like I, I don't. I don't think anyone was thinking that like they were last week, but it it, it was like that kind of sense of 
a lesser team being frustrated in their big game. I mean, there are, I have to say, I mean, maybe because I'm overcommitted to to Spurs in a sport where I'm normally pretty logical, actually, about everybody else. It, it felt always as a sense of liberation when you beat Chelsea, like something has been pressing on your neck for years and then suddenly the, the weight is lifted. And you wrote, Jack, in the, in the Athletic this morning, you've written a piece saying exactly this, that not, be, not because Chelsea are so bad, but just because it, at times it got to be almost routine. It did feel really routine. It felt like it felt like a lot of the you know if you look at Spurs' last few games, put the Milan game to one side. In the last five league games, they've won four of them, and they've kept four clean sheets. And they really have. I know Leicester was a disaster, but I think the further away we get from Leicester, Leicester actually looks more like an aberration, just like a really really bad day at the office where everything went wrong at the same time against a really good Leicester team. I, I, I kind of feel like if you put that Leicester game to one side and you look at the four wins, Fulham, Manchester City, West Ham and Chelsea, you get a real sense that Tottenham have kind of found a method that works for them at the moment. You know, they're not, it's not great to watch all the time and the first halves are always really boring. I know this was in the first half against City and at the very end of the first half against Fulham, but generally speaking, the first halves are boring. But they get a foothold in the game and then the second half, they, they push the tempo up and that was exactly the same between the West Ham game last last time out and the, and the Chelsea game this time. You know, Tottenham scored almost practically from the kickoff at the start of the second half yesterday. And uh, it was part of the same move. You know, ball, ball went back to Dyer, then Dyer hit it forward to Richarlison and then, you know, 20 seconds later, Skipper scored. So that that kind of solid first half, tempo goes up in the second half pattern, I think it is quite effective. And it, and again, it's an example, we, we, we definitely talked about this last week. Football's much easier if you're not tootled down at half time. It's much easier. It's easier for the players and the managers. It's also easier on the on the, uh, the limited emotional resources of the fans as well. I think it's fair to say they could always, of course, unless part of it is just running the opposition into the ground. But I don't see that with Spurs' low block. And um, they could always reverse the pattern, get the two goals in the first half, and let us all have a our feet on the corner of the desk and a cigar on uh, for the second half. But you know that's not what's happening. They're quite good at letting the opposition have sort of pointless possession which I thought they did well yesterday. Like Chelsea, I know I know this is not I know this is a feature of lots of Chelsea's games recently. Like I, I don't have off the top of my head I don't have the statistics, but they've scored so few goals given the talent they have. But they it's do insane. really pass the ball. Six pass the six ball goals since November they've in the league. The, the lowest the lowest in the league. They've won two league games in fifteen. That is an, an appalling run. I, I, I really I'm amazed that more hasn't been made of and it has been mentioned on the Athletic, but I don't think it's been like widely mentioned all over the place. It's insane. Two two wins in 15 for a club who's spent that much money. Then they've got one recognised out-and-out striker at the club and they leave him out of the Champions League. Let's not talk about Chelsea. We're not here to talk about Chelsea. I thought there was, having spoken about it in the preview, there was a bit of the Battle of the Bridge about it. I suppose definitely weren't going to be bullied. And at, at one stage in the first half, that appeared to me that's what Chelsea, after they'd worked out that they, they that their patterns weren't going to break Spurs down very easily. The game got very feisty then. I'm not blaming entirely Chelsea for that. One or two Spurs players who just love it these days, don't they? But I like the fact that the game was a proper derby, that people were getting stuck in, and that the Spurs players, particularly represented by their South Americans, God bless all of them, just weren't going to be backed down. It does seem strange that a team would try and take that kind of game to Spurs when there's Romero, Richarlison... You know, I know Denmark isn't in South America, but Hoiberg as well, and one or two others. Oh, Emerson Royal, Emerson Royal, Emerson Royal. Yeah, 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 that is true. Yeah, 
uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, the first half it was like that, but I, to be honest, from from the well, from the skip goal onwards, as Jack kind of alluded to before, mostly sort of sterile domination. They weren't really massively threatening, but I was a bit sort of uncomfortable that they were having so much for the ball and it did kind of feel like. You know, they, they were kind of threading balls through, and Forster was doing well to get down to them. And there wasn't like there was one a moment, yeah, clear cut chance, but he did think there could be, um, which is why I kind of think Spurs scored at exactly the right time when they did. But yeah, it just felt incredibly. I think if you look back on it now, it would look incredibly comfortable from Spurs. I, obviously, it didn't feel that comfortable at the no, time. No, of course, that's about, the way football. Well, yeah. The other team had that much of the ball, but yeah, I think if you're watching it as a neutral, or if you watched it back this morning, I don't think you'd like watch that and think there was any moment when it looked at risk at all. No, I, th- I think I've, I've become so conditioned post-Barcelona, post-Tic-Attacker, to believe that possession is a hugely important part of the game. And I may need to unravel some of my thinking about that because there are teams now, of whom Spurs are, of course, the obvious and leading exponent, who are starting to think, you know, we can do this with less than a majority of possession. Do you think Spurs are one of the leading anti-possession teams in the world now? In terms of a good team... Because it's always really been Atletico Madrid, but Atletico Madrid are obviously clearly in in a, a form of decline over the last three three years or so. Uh, I think Spurs are probably better than Atletico Madrid. And I think Spurs are. I think Spurs are, when they're really good, when they're really on it. I think Spurs might be the best proponents of anti-possession football in the world. I'm sure someone's going to shout me down for this, but yeah, to prove your point and about how pointless the decline of Atletico Madrid. It was, of course, it was the Madrid derby this weekend. Atletico played what was notionally 4-5-1. The one, though, was Antoine Griezmann replicating his role in the World Cup as a as a false 10. Um, so they effectively played, first time since Craig Levine did it for Scotland, they played 4-6-0 and they still got a result. But that you know that's a separate issue. I don't want to um, overpraise him here because I think he still possibly uh, will make me look a mug occasionally. But if ever a game was designed for Christian Romero, this was it. And he was... Well, I thought I thought he was titanic in the game, in it, going forward and at the back in every way. Four clean sheets in a row, right? Four clean sheets in a row for him in the Premier League. The game he missed, obviously, for the suspension at the end of the Man City game was that Leicester game. What, one of our regular listeners, and I suppose we should probably call him a regular contributor, given how often we kind of steal his tweets, mm-hmm. Adam Nathan, yeah, tweeted after the game yesterday uh, uh, to us, and I think it's a really good point that Sterling basically didn't go anywhere near. Romero during the game and uh, Adam's theory was that that was because he knew he was going to get kicked up in the air which I, I, I don't think is a, I don't think is an ill-founded theory I definitely think he's building a reputation as a sort of uncompromising defender who only the bravest attacking players are going to go anywhere near and I mean I know obviously there's a risk of you know red, red cards and penalties and whatever so has he given away a penalty I'm not sure that he has no he's, he's no, no, no Serge is he put it like that touching touch wood now yeah uh, he has been incredibly good, and, and you're right, we were moaning about him so recently, and it does feel like very quickly he's kind of recaptured the essence of what was making him so good last season, which was just about showing enough aggression. And, and by aggression, I don't just mean the physicality of the challenges, I mean how high up the pitch he's pressing and ha- how far he's going chasing lost causes and whatever else. But even then, I mean, how many times how many times do you think he's been caught out when he's gone up the pitch? When we mentioned the, the foul on Tonali in the Milan away game the other week when maybe he was lucky to not get a red card. But other than that, I can't think of any occasions where like he's he's gone up the pitch and the ball's been played in behind and Spurs have been exposed and conceded a goal. 
I don't think. Well, no, uh, but but with a t- with, with a team with two holding midfielders and three centre backs, that should be the case. But there was, well, unless my eyes deceived me, there was a moment when he ran forward and ended up on the penalty spot, the opposition penalty spot. Yeah, he was the he furthest was. forward. It was, it was the first half, wasn't it? He was the furthest forward Spurs player. And Kane did one of his flip passes over the top. And unfortunately, Romero was just muscled out as he ran through on goal. So that was amazing. But I thought I thought it was one of those games where he gets... He was perfect, really, in what he did. There were so many instances where, particularly things like 50-50s or loose balls or just kind of clearing... Well, he does that thing where he clears the ball incredibly hard into an opponent. Just to rattle them a bit, and he, which is one of his, one of his. He tricks. actually hurt himself and doing that in the first half. He didn't was, <laughs> yeah, he was so aggressive in everything he did, and at times it looked like he was, you know, kind of slightly out of control. But I don't think he ever was. I think he was always playing right. It was a perfect example of playing right on the boundary of legality and control. And in that sense, it was a, it was a, t- it was a tick in the column for our Christian Romero's actually very rational argument, which so, which has surged back. We're pivoting back to that. Do now. you know what I think about that, Jack? I think you want it to, you want that to be true because like, you want the world to be a logical place. I see him more and more as an artist bringing a slight meaning to utter chaos. Maybe this is a bad analogy, but any, if, you, if you ever play poker, you know that sometimes the rational thing to do is just to escalate wildly. Yeah. Escalate wildly because nobody else knows what to do if you do that. And um, maybe I think that's like Romero. Romero knows that if he, if he, esca- if he raises the stakes, then um, other people back away a bit. And uh, I think that's the kind of method that, that works Okay, so that's the, new, that's the new line we're taking. He's nearly always all in, yeah? Yeah, all in. Having praised Romero, and we'll get round to Harry Kane, Oliver Skip. Now, of course, it's, it's a very small sample of a few games. Talk about stepping up to the plate. I thought it too, he too was absolutely excellent. And I shouldn't say this, but, you know, we're football fans. Up against a £100 million footballer, he was absolutely excellent. And maybe, and I know that it, the management think that uh, Benton Kerr and Hoiberg are inseparable, but now they've got another option, even when, God bless us, months down the line, uh, Rodrigo gets fit again, J- James. Uh, yeah, I thought it was absolutely excellent, beyond just the goal. I mean, we probably should have mentioned him as another one of the players who's kind of not afraid to get stuck in because some of the challenges he made that kind of snuffed out potential Chelsea attacks or counter-attacks were absolutely crucial. Uh, and I think, to be honest, that's probably one of the reasons why they were able to create so few clear-cut chances, that he was incredibly diligent when it came to making robust challenges just to kind of nip, nip it in the bud, really. I, I mean, you're, you're right in what you say about that partnership in midfield with, with uh, Hoiberg and Bensonker, but, you know, as you said before, Skip looked before he got injured in January last year and Bensonker signed. Like, his trajectory was, you know, I, I'm pretty sure we were talking about him being a potential England player, and I'm pretty sure we may have even mentioned the possibility of him going to the World Cup at the end of that year. Clearly, that injury was perhaps worse or took longer to recover from than we expected and you know even though his name has been on the team sheet for a while he's been on the bench a lot I don't know perhaps he wasn't quite physically or mentally quite ready to kind of throw himself into a game like he did yesterday but he looked he looked so good and that the energy and that willingness to kind of cover every blade of grass is exactly what you need in that system and I I would absolutely be certain that that Conte would have been absolutely delighted with how he played. I mean, maybe that's really obvious, but he would, that would be exactly what he wants from a player in that position. And uh, he scored a brilliant goal, though you wouldn't have known that from the Sky commentary, where Martin Tyler underplayed it, as he tends to do these days. And Alan Smith, who does every Spurs game, and I know Alan, I've worked with him, he's a very nice guy, 
but man, is he grudging about Spurs. Alan tried to pretend there was a deflection off Koulibaly's head to take some of the gloss off the goal, which, Alan, he had smashed into the net. He also said it was like a sort of striker's finish, and I'm pretty sure that's not the kind of goal you say that about. Like Kane's kind of, you know, oh, like a poacher's yeah. finish in the six-yard box. That's like a sort of striker's chance, like like that he's taken on, you know, taken without a moment's hesitation. Surely that's the kind of goal you would say that about, but not one you've banged in from 25 yards in off the crossbar. That's, that's just an amazing goal. I guess the, uh, and we're not looking for any reason, but 1% of taking the air out of the tyres of that, of course, Kepa, you can't be beaten in the middle of the goal like that, but that's good. I'm glad you were. That's the, that's the way of it. Two other players who I want to mention. Forster, who we have been... I was going to say, have we been mean about him? We, we were mean, mean after man. the Leicester game. game. We after certainly Leicester were, game. yeah. We were pretty mean after the Leicester game. Uh, I thought that was his best game for Tottenham. Uh, he made... I mean... The saves he made weren't especially difficult, but he still made them. Also, the bit where he ran out and got the ball from Havertz's feet uh, in the second half, right when it was still 1-0, is the kind of thing where if he'd messed it up, I don't know, imagine if he got sent off and Chelsea scored a penalty, and then Chelsea would have won because Spurs would have been down to 10. So, But he got that right, and that's the kind of thing we thought he was bad at. So that was good. Also, Richarlison. Richarlison he looked absolutely yeah. crestfallen to get taken off because he still hasn't scored in the Premier League. But he, he helped make both goals. The first goal started with Dyer hitting a long ball to Richarlison, which he held up, went to Kulisewski, went to Emerson Royale. Um, second goal came from Richarlison, who'd been kept on because he stayed on and switched the right instead of Kulisewski when Sonny came on. Richarlison uh, chased down a lost cause, forced a corner, and that corner ends up with Kane putting it in the back of the net. So Richarlison was integral to both goals, and I hope he just doesn't get too disheartened by the fact that he is uh, still on zero in the Premier League. And I know you shouldn't praise footballers for their work rate because we would all expect them to work hard, but his his work rate is something else to see, isn't it? Extraordinary. I know people say, well, he's had half he, a season. He presses better than Kane or Son. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's kind yeah, of obvious. He's really, really good without the ball. Something lovely as well and poetic about, um, and sorry, Chelsea fans, if you're listening, I've given one Chelsea fan the podcast off. He listens regularly. He said, I can't listen to this. I said, that's fine. We'll see you on Thursday. The uh, poetry of a billion pound football team being beaten by one by two goals from homegrown players was not lost on me either. Has, doesn't happen very often at Spurs, does it? Lovely. Yeah, I mean, I'm, there must have been another game where Kane and Winks or... You're exactly right. Two Townsend, maybe, if you found one. There was a game against... Well, Swansea, 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 Swansea. Is it Last Swansea? time was... Ah. West Ham, where Harry Winks scored. Oh, yeah. Seven long years ago. That was the start of the, the, start of the comeback. Was, I think there was a game against Swansea where Townsend definitely scored and Kane. Tom Carroll must have scored like, as well with Kane at some stage. Yeah, maybe. There were, I'm sure there was... I just I remember a game where... Like the crowd sang, he's one of our own about Kane, and then they sang it about Townsend, and then they sang it about like Ryan Mason, maybe. Well, I, th- I think the the that sounds like a Europa League game from about 2012. The army, the uh, army of bees that we have working on this program, uh, with teenagers with asymmetric haircuts, have come up. Uh, the game was that 2016 three two win over West Ham. Winks got up. it was a very late goal as I, as I recall, and Kane scored as well, which takes us on. And we'll get on to the nonsense of the VAR in a second, but it takes us on to, it's almost a weekly thing now, the Harry Kane Appreciation Society. Because he scores so often now and because he has piled these things up, every goal he gets these days either takes him past a record or extends a record he's already set. One only two players to score 20-plus goals in each of the last nine seasons in all competitions for clubs in Europe's big five leagues. He is in great, great company, I guess with the other most obvious out and out centre forward, if not Benzema, and it isn't Benzema because he had his injury, 
Uh, Robert Lewandowski has also scored 20 goals in each of the last umpteen seasons. Nine seasons, 20-plus goals. I've got another um, extended one here for you. I remember about a year ago, somebody saying, oh, there's another record gone to Harry Kane when he went past Thierry Henry's record for the most goals scored in London derbies. And that was in the mid-40s. Yesterday was Harry Kane's 55th goal in London derbies. And I'm going to do this now. He has scored once against Brentford. He has scored twice against Wimbledon and Queen's Park Rangers. He's got eight goals against Fulham and, as of yesterday, Chelsea. And now we're into double figures, everybody. Harry Kane has scored 10 times against Fulham, 10 times against West Ham United. And for all of those who love putting up that little picture of him as a boy in his Arsenal shirt, he has scored 14 times against Arsenal so far in his career, making a total of 55 goals in London derbies. And that's one of the reasons why he's so beloved. If you're going to score, score in the derbies. And while I'm looking at that stat of 14 goals against Arsenal, Leicester, of course, is saying, hold our coat. He has scored 19 times against the Foxes. Look, it didn't matter in the end because Spurs won. And, you know, to reflect your piece, Jack, won comfortably. But the VAR had me, if you were excited by the second goal, I must say what little hair I still have, I was tearing it out, uh, James. First of all, you know, because I said I said in the preview to this game, Spurs have found over the years a, an astonishing array of different ways to lose to Chelsea. But this was a new one on me. Going down, seeing the opposition go down to 10 men and then seeing them restored to 11. Yeah, well, well firstly, I mean, the, the main reason to be happy that Spurs won that game is because it's given us licence to moan about VAR. And if, if Spurs had lost after that incident, it would have felt a bit sort of, you know, like we were making excuses or, or whatever. But because they've won and they won so comprehensively, it's now incredibly easy for us to have a massive moan about how VAR is the worst thing that's ever happened to football. And it is. And let me tell you, if you thought that was annoying, sat watching at home. Imagine how annoying it was in the stadium with even less idea. I'd seen ten replays, on. and you, know, you, you of course were sitting there, presumably in the, in the dark, just wondering what the hell's going on. Uh, it, it was absolutely mad. I mean, I, I, did you not think that was by modern standards that that was a red card? No, I didn't. I mean, it, it, irrespective of the fact that Ziyech has made the foul on Richarlison, then whacked or slapped uh, Emerson Royale in the face. So there were two fairly obvious yellow card offences there. And as a lot of people are saying on Twitter, should he not have been shown two yellow cards, one for the challenge, one for the shove or the push or the slap or whatever you want to call it? I think very possibly yes. That would have made more um, sense, I thought, than, than giving him a straight red for violent conduct. Sense. I've got to be honest. Irrespective of that, like, like the experience in the stadium, when you see like the, this very long VAR check, and then a player be shown a red card and walk off the pitch. You couldn't really see this in the ground, but apparently the fourth official was telling him, stay on the pitch, don't go, don't go off the pitch, he's going to go and have a look. I don't understand that process. And I know there's been some kind of subsequent attempts at justif justification for it, in that apparently he couldn't have looked at VAR without showing the red card. But that's absolutely... Oh, no. The VAR truck knew that it wasn't a red card, in their opinion, and lured him. They had to lure him into giving the red card. So in the end, they make it, you know, they just made him look a mug. Why, why could they not just say it's not a red card? Don't worry about it. If they didn't think it was a red card, because they just not showing a red card.
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. This is The View from the Lane. I'm Danny Kelly. James Moore and Jack Pitbrook alongside me. Now, we occasionally throw out part, all or part of the program to you, the listeners. And this, this time around, I mean, maybe people were in a particularly good mood after the Chelsea game, but an absolute flood of questions and topics and comments for us to discuss, some of them more comedic than others. But let me start, if I may, and uh, one of the listeners said, am I ever going to say anything nice about Antonio Conte? Uh, just let me say, Mark, I almost do a deal with you. Um, if Antonio will say something positive about the football club that employs him in a press conference in public, then I will start pray, uh, say something nice about him as well. Um, it's a two-way street, that, Mark. And a, a lot of, I can't find, let me see if I can find one of the questions that summed this up. I mean, this was a, this was a kind of a comedy take on it from... Uh, Aditya Siddharth says, does Conte's assistant get nominated for manager of the month or is it Conte? Making the point that they played very well without Antonio on the sideline. And there were lots and lots and lots of questions and comments about this. 
In a serious mode, Jack saying that perhaps Conte's very strict visage at the side of the pitch was inhibiting the players in some way. That seemed to be the thrust of them. Yeah, it's a theory that you hear quite a lot. You know, people wondering whether or not Conte not being there has been has been good for the players. Look, I certainly think that it's been, you know, confidence has been really low at times this season. And I think that Conte is not necessarily a manager who is good at lifting confidence. I think he's very good. I think he's a brilliant coach and he's uh, he's incredible at teaching his players what he wants them to do. But I don't think he's necessarily very good at helping to lift the spirits of players who are, who are not playing particularly well. Uh, and I think, you know, it's been a very... T- difficult season for Conte in that sense as well. I do think that Conte's absence has forced a lot of the players to take responsibility a bit. Uh, this is something that Stellini's spoken about very openly. He did last night talking in the press conference talking about how, you know, it's like when a teenager matures, like you know, you have to make decisions for yourself and be your own person a bit. So while I certainly, you know, I would I, I don't want to be taking that context here. I would certainly not. I would not say that Conte, you know, Conte's illness is not a good thing at all. It's been a really horrible thing to happen to him and his family. But I do think that one of the byproducts of his being away is that it does seem to have. It seems to have kind of encouraged an atmosphere of you know collective decision making, autonomy, and players not just hiding behind the manager and not just not just taking Conte's instructions and dictates and you know maybe being a bit grumpy about being told what to do all the time, but instead getting a bit more ownership over the direction of the team and the play and everything. I think it, you know, in that sense, it has been beneficial. Is there any way, do, do you think, knowing the kind of manager he is and the, the way he wants his team to play and the way he wants a club to be run, do you think that he can come back and it, it continues to go like that or does it then have to go back to kind That's of... That's a really, really good question. I've been or, thinking or about this... Or whatever. I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, I certainly think... And Stellini confirmed... I asked Stellini this in the press conference yesterday and he confirmed it. I definitely think Conte's coming back into a, a happier, a happier, more confident dressing room and training ground than the one that he left when he first went off for surgery a few weeks ago. It'll be interesting to see in terms of the decision-making to what extent, you know... Do they go back to the old the old mode of Conte telling them exactly what to do? I mean, you know, it's not like Conte it's not like Conte's completely letting them get on with it at the moment. You know, he's been very specific with Stellini about instructions and what they're gonna do in training and what the team's gonna be and all that. But I just hope so I, I don't basically I don't know, but I hope that the good things that we've seen in the last few weeks, particularly in terms of collective decision making amongst both the players and the coaches, I hope some of that survives and it's not just going back to Conte telling everyone exactly what to do all the time. That said, I wonder. I, I wonder if Conte will quite have the you know the reserves of physical energy required to be his normal self. I I would guess he probably wouldn't, just because being Antonio Conte is physically exhausting. You know, taking telling people you know be, telling people what to do that much in training and on the side of the pitch and all the time and in video sessions. It must be exhausting. So maybe he, maybe what he can do will be slightly different from what he used to do before his illness. Yeah. Well, it's a very small sample size, and I, I don't put anything into this. But Stellini has um, stood in for him on six occasions: twice at Inter and four times at Spurs. He's won all those games. Or to put it more pertinently, the players who represent those clubs have won the football matches. Dan Macklin said, "Does Charlie Eccleshare think we'll finish in the top four? Charlie, of course, throughout the." Second half of last season kept uh, assuring me and James um, when we got a bit down in the mouth about it that Spurs would finish in the top four. And Eccleshare was right. Let's be absolutely uh, f- fair about that. 
And of course, we can now answer that because Charlie, in the latter stages of his apparently endless paternity leave, and two and a half years is it now for paternity leave? Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, like um, that, yeah. Does Charlie, uh, says uh, Dan, does Charlie think they'll finish top four? Charlie replied, I do. I think that Liverpool rather than Newcastle will be the biggest obstacle, but I'm backing Spurs. Starting to feel a bit like the run from late February onwards last season when things came together. And that, Jack, I suppose, is what we have to hope for, that the brilliant attacking dynamic side that, that finished last season and which has been in such stark contrast to what we've seen this season can find that form again in the latter third of the season, in which case Spurs will have a very, very decent chance of finishing in that top four. Yeah, I think that's been one of the the sort of underlying messages from Conte, which really launched the start of this phase, you know, back when he was telling the players in mid-January before the Fulham game how he wanted them to be better. And one of the things that Conte made really clear to the players is, last season you were one of the best teams, second half of last season Spurs were one of the best teams in the country, measured by, you know, defensively and going forward. And this season their defensive record's been terrible. And there's no reason why Spurs shouldn't be as good this season as they were last season. In fact, they should be better because they've signed better players last summer. As much as Conte likes to pretend they haven't, they have. So basically, there is no reason why Spurs shouldn't be able to replicate that. And I think in the last few weeks, we are starting to see the the green shoots of recovery. You know, we are starting to see Tottenham playing. It's not quite as good as they were the second half of last season, but they're solid and organised and they've got a plan and they, they know how to win games. So I think I do think things are moving slowly in that direction. Matt London, going back to... Antonio Conte. Matt says, um, would a top four finish be a fitting way for Conte to move on? Uh, the likelihood is that the club won't spend big on multiple players that are the finished article in his, Antonio's eyes. Um, and then he says, with tremendous optimism, would Spalletti be a better fit in terms of project and player development? Um, he could see it as a new challenge after winning Serie A, referring to Spalletti, who manages Napoli, who are, as I look at the with bewilderment at the Serie A table 18 points clear of um, the great the great clubs of uh, of northern Italy amazing the question is 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 okay to ask James but I'm almost physically exhausted in the style of Antonio Conte after a match I'm almost exhausted from talking about Conte and his contract it didn't happen he didn't sign it during the World Cup he's not going to sign it at the very least till the end of this season and possibly not even then yeah, I mean, it's hard to see for a whole host of reasons that the dial is likely to have moved nearer him signing a contract uh, at any point over the last m- month, six weeks. Uh, understandably so. So I-, I think it's natural for us as fans to be thinking about who will be the manager next season. And I would hope that the club, at, at the very top of the club, they are thinking about that as well. That would be the main thing for me. For there to be like a sense of succession planning going on, because you know it, it may well end up that Conte comes back and there's a good end to the season and he feels happier and more settled and everyone's into it and he decides he wants to sign a new contract and stay and if the momentum is good then fine, but you know I think the direction of travel until a few weeks ago was was pretty much the exact opposite of that. So for all we may think that would be the best thing. I would be quite surprised if there was a set of circumstances in which Conte was a Tottenham manager next season, in my opinion. This is from the Benton Curate's Egg. Well done, mate. How important do you think the restoration of a meritocracy has been to the improvement in performance? 
Um, of course, it's uh, conjecture, he says, but I just can't envisage Emerson, Davis or Richarlison keeping their places under the mood hoover. I think that's um, what he calls Antonio Conte. And yet they are all vital to the performance against Chelsea. Yeah, I think the team selection's been really good in the last few weeks. I think that the you know the decision to drop Son was months overdue. I think dropping Perisic was probably overdue as well. Um, and Davis is bore as boring as it looks having Davis as a left wing back as part of a back eight. It has actually worked pretty well. And again, sticking with Royale over Porro. Uh, you know, R- Royale gets Royale is currently in his best ever run of form for Tottenham. So, yeah, I think it's been. Uh, I think I think the team selections have been good, and it's and it's good that because it's if you keep playing the same players every week, even when those players are playing badly obviously it really really damages the mood at the club so i do think i'm sure it is good for good for the overall feel of the club to know that you know these positions are being distributed a bit more fairly i think yeah let me let me just say about ben davis i know he's unglamorous i know um people it's it's a simple fact that if ben davis let's say that he is the 11th best player in your team and i'm not suggesting that he is at spurs if ben davis is the 11th best player in your team you've got a hell of a football team on your hands because you've got 10 better players than that on the pitch, then you're doing very, very well. He is a solid seven every week. One or two of the more flippant questions. Uh, this is from Alison Jane Smith, who is just about the most committed Spurs fan I know. Um, and she says, is it time to change our motto? I mean, why would you do that, Alison? You know, to dare is to do, is, it seems to be the most perfect uh, thing for Spurs. And it may be the reason, because I've been inculcated, hypnotised by it, um, that I sometimes get on, sorry again, Mark Brownlee, to Antonio Conte, who's I think, lacks a bit of daring. Um, he has made a different calculation about the necessity of daring than I've made about football. But the one that really caught my eye, and I want both of you to answer this, is uh, Cheese Babbitts has said, which would you rather fight, one Christian Romero-sized duck or 36 duck-sized Christian Romero's? <laughs> now, I'm going to put this to you, James, first, because you would have a, even with a Christian Romero-sized duck, you would still have a size advantage in the ring. Yeah. I'm just trying to think how 36 duck-sized Christian Romero's are likely to Amazing. Because, <laughs> no, but, but no, I don't know, knowing, knowing what we do about the way he is a bit of a renegade, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I think they might sort of all go alone and tactically they might not be, I might be able to catch them out. And you can just kind of punt them, can't you, ducks? Awful little fuck. You really, you don't like ducks? You, are, I mean, I, I love this podcast. You wouldn't like ducks if they had the aggression of Christian Romero. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, it's conjecture, isn't it? It's, it's like not reality. Sea, like seagulls with wider beaks. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it is a good question. I'd always fear. I must say, I must. I'd always fear the flock of anything rather than one individual thing. Jack, you don't agree. I just can't. I'm. I am completely freaked out by the prospect of coming face to face with a six foot tall duck. <laughs> I think it would it would uh, it would do my it, I, yeah I, I would find that very difficult to come to terms with. I think we're, lots of Christian Romero's sort of t- ten inches tall or whatever would be actually not so much of a problem. I, I think with the big the big Christian Romero duck, I wonder whether you see it depends on whether it, it, the creature has the temperament of a duck or Christian Romero. Because if it's the former, you can distract it with bits of bread, can't you? I think most ducks have that temperament, don't they? They, they ducks have that kind of temperament. I think haggy. creatures just react around you in that way, James. <laughs> uh, may, maybe, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and stop being so grumpy about them. Ducks, blinking ducks. Do you like geese, swans? 
get a lot of geese and swans down here in Kingston, actually. They're, the, ge- the geese are quite placid. Swan, yeah. Swans oh, are yeah. notoriously aggressive. I, yeah, I wouldn't get involved with a swan. Well, thank you for that question, because I thought I think it brought the best out of us there, uh, Cheese Babbits. And something else that occurred to me during watching the football over the weekend, the Carabao Cup final, Spurs' game, and thinking about Aston Villa, they didn't quite play in the World Cup final, but it could have been. The two Martinez's and Christian Romero, Argentina are well on their way to constructing the greatest Housery eleven of all time. They need to get one or two of the more general players out of that team, but that as a start of a three, a defensive three, they're well on their way, aren't they? Listen, thank you for all the questions. Um, sorry to those whose questions didn't get either asked or answered to your satisfaction. Mark Brownlee, I will say this, Antonio Conte seems like a perfectly decent human being to me. I only argue with him about the way he picks, he runs the Spurs and the way he reflects on Spurs in his discussions. Oh, well, one more thing, actually. Somebody was asking about the music that Spurs come out to. A piece of music is called... Um, that You know the thing I'm talking about. What, the Star Wars thing? Yes. Jewel of the Fates, I think it's called. Yes. I think Nick Miller and the Athletic has answered this. Now, of course... I recognise it's a piece of music by, by the composer Carl Orff. It's called Jewel of the Fates, and it's the climatic theme, apparently, of the first Star Wars prequel, The Phantom Menace, and it stemmed from the North London Derby in 2004. Uh, Spurs wants to create a pre-game montage to beef up the atmosphere at the lane, so put together one soundtrack by a movement from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff. It did beef up the atmosphere, although Arsenal scored after two minutes and ultimately got the point that secured the league title, so they wanted to create similar montage for future games, and Sky helped them make the new one. You can read all about that in The Athletic this week. The next up is the game against Sheffield United in the FA Cup, oddly on a Wednesday night, I think. Feeling uh, feeling um, confident about that away at Sheffield United, James? Uh, no, obviously not. No, of course um, not, yeah. No the, no, the last time you tried to get me to be confident, you tricked me into saying we beat Leicester and then we lost 4-1. So, you know, you've always got... You, the, Oh, let me, so, sorry, sorry, sorry. Let me get this right then. So, so when you get something right, we're expected to fly bunting from, from every street corner. But when you get something wrong, you've been tricked. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Okay. Yeah. I, I, my, my understanding from speaking to Richard Sutcliffe, the Athletics Sheffield United reporter, is that they may not play a full-strength team which obviously would be good for Spurs. My understanding from speaking to Jack Pitbrook, one of the Athletics Tottenham Hotspur reporters, is that uh, he at least thinks Harry Kane will play. So. Surely Kane will play. Yeah. Surely Kane will play. What are they going to do for goals if he doesn't play? Rich Arlington could play as a number nine for the first time. I, I, I hear that, but do you, we, we want to win this FA Cup, don't we? I want to win the FA Cup, yeah. yeah. I'm very much on the side of Kane playing. Yeah. Um, I'm not against it, obviously, but I, I, I um, wouldn't be surprised if uh, he was on the bench and Richardson played up front. I mean, we, we'll, we'll have to take the game seriously. I'm, I'm looking forward to the yeah, game. Yeah, have to take it seriously. Sheffield United... I'm, I've never been to Bramall Lane before. Sheffield United are the second best team in that division. I mean, there is a drop-off between themselves and Burnley. Let's be truthful about that. Um, but they're still a very, very good team, particularly at home. Um, I'll be interested in your views on Bramall Lane, because I haven't been there for a very, very long time, Jack. Yes, the last time I was there, it was a three-sided stadium, which backed onto a cricket pitch. That'll tell you how long ago that was. Listen, Jack has crystallised some of the thoughts he expressed here on The View from Lane in his piece in The Athletic about what a difference a month makes in Spurs and the gloomy and uh, downtrodden 
editions of this podcast, we try and reflect the truth of the way people are feeling, um, has been replaced with a, the green shoots of optimism and certainly the, t- the team's form, allowing for that terrible, terrible calamity at Leicester City is, is starting to improve. Um, so you can read Jack's piece. And indeed, there's a whole ton of stuff on The Athletic every day about Spurs and much else besides. So if you're not already a subscriber, you should sign up now. All you've got to do is go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod and sign up, well, today for $1.99 a month for the first 12 months. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Thanks for listening. Thanks to uh, James and Jack for being here. Thank you for all your questions. See you soon. The Athletic.